We believe the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a restoration of the original Church established by Jesus Christ, which was built upon the foundation of apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. We declare to the world that the fullness of the gospel has been restored to the earth. We declare with boldness that the keys of the priesthood have been restored to man. We declare to the world that this is the day referred to by biblical prophets as the latter days. It is the final time before the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign on the earth. I was thinking about these two sections, well, section 137 mostly, that, uh, the, I don't know, section 137, like the big idea here is that, I think the, the shocking thought in all of this for Joseph Smith and 136, and I may, okay, maybe for Joseph Smith was that individuals who had died without receiving their covenants still inherited the highest degree of glory. Right. It was kind of like a totally new way of thinking. So I was thinking like, okay, well, what in the scriptures has led for this uh, wrong assumption to occur? The fact that one, the Old Testament was very sparse, like on details <laughs> in the New Testament also. It's not the best record keeping. You know? right. Some of it could be to, you know, we know that it's been translated and translated and translated and the original sources, you know, have been watered down. Uh, things might have been summarized. At what point were they written? Were they written after, you know, all these oral histories kind of had to occur and, and then somebody finally wrote down like Moses? Like, I think Moses is the oldest one we have, right? He's the one that started the book of Genesis. He wrote yeah, they call him the, the books of Moses. Yeah. You know? And so by the time Moses is in the picture, you know, hundreds, maybe thousands of years have gone by, right? My, my thought was, th this seems like a very crucial revelation about the spirit world, about life after death, about that we're, we're born and told you need to do these things, receive these covenants. Uh, but if you don't have the opportunity to receive them, which is probably the large majority of the people that have been born on earth. Oh, yeah. Uh, the assumption was, hey, you're kind of out of luck. And that's that never sits well with individuals. Once they they start seeing, I don't think that would sit well with anyone who's a you know a disciple of Christ. You know, it it kind of contradicts his teachings. Well, it's interesting because it says in the Bible that Adam was 930 years old when he died. <clears throat> if you were to measure every year being like uh, every moon, he was alive, he would go off of a lunar calendar and say every moon be considered a new year. That would make him 77 and a half years old when he died. Because essentially we have a new moon every month, right? Every 28 days or so. So he'd be like around 80, which is a lot more realistic, right? So even if you were to just make a simple calculation like that and say, what they really mean was he was alive for 930 moons. Then that suddenly makes his age not that crazy high. I don't know. I don't know how it's all measured. I don't know how all that works but yeah it's it's kind of interesting as far as this this section goes i think yeah they have they've had visions before that's not really a new thing they already had this the vision where they see all the kingdoms of glory and stuff and described that in you know in a little bit of detail um so that's not even that new 
the, the key there is that he saw his brother Alvin, right? He says, and I marveled how it was that he obtained an inheritance in that kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel the second time. He had not been baptized for the remission of sins. In other words, Alvin died before he had a chance to be baptized in the correct way and before the second coming. And so he's like, how is he with Abraham and Adam and all these people? And then that's when, you know, basically the Lord tells him, everyone who's died without a knowledge of this gospel, who would have received it, if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs to such the kingdom of God. And all that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it in their hearts, shall be heirs for that kingdom. I mean, it's comforting to know that if somebody never had the chance, the Lord knows them, the Lord knows their spirit, the Lord knows what they would have chosen. At the same time, I, it brings a lot of questions to my head. Like, then why bother so hard in going and teaching and finding everyone if everyone's going to get a fair shake anyway? And if it's going to be based off of what they would have done, is that kind of assume behaviors with their agency that we tend to try not to make? What would someone do? Well, the Lord knows us, but he also isn't the idea of predestination that you're, everything that's happening to you is already determined, that fate idea. We don't, we don't really like to talk about that as being the case because we like to say, you have your agency to choose. Here's the idea of what will happen, but you have control over your life. So it, it just kind of makes me have all these questions of like, if in the end, he's going to look at you and say, well, this person would have had they had the chance. And it's like, why are we sending people to the farthest reaches of the earth to teach the gospel when we could just count on them to receive mercy in the end? You know, I thought about jokingly, you know, growing up in the church uh, as a kid, you would think once you reach the age of accountability, right, then before then it was kind of like your sins are kind of paid for. It's not your fault. You know, once you reach the age of accountability, then you're, it, it's kind of up to you, you know, you, you know, kind of the clock starts ticking or, or because now you know. And I, when I was little, I used to always think, well, it would be cool if you kind of died before you reach the age of, and then you're guaranteed to go to heaven, you know, like, but that's how, you know, a child thinks until you realize that we all have to progress. You cannot be saved in ignorance or innocence. You have to progress. Uh, it's just like the Garden of Eden. We cannot stay there. Sure, it was nice, and there was no no sin or bad things. Um, but you have to progress. You have to become more. Um, and so, one of the thoughts I that this section has had me thinking about was actually the the light of Christ. So in the in the website, the Church of Jesus Christ org, if you go to the Gospel topics and you go to the light of Christ, just the first paragraph says the light of Christ is the divine energy, power, or influence that proceeds from God through Christ and gives life to all things. The light of Christ influences people for good and prepares them to receive the Holy Ghost. One manifestation of the light of Christ is that is what we call a conscience. And then if you just jump down to the last paragraph, uh, it says, Conscience is a manifestation of the light of Christ, enabling us to judge good from evil. The prophet Mormon taught, The Spirit of Christ is given to every man, that he may know good from evil. Wherefore, I show unto you the way to judge. For everything that invited to do good and to, and to persuade to believe in Christ is sent forth by the power and the gift of Christ. Wherefore, ye may know with a perfect knowledge it is of God. And now, my brethren, seeing that ye know the light by which ye may judge, which light is the light of Christ, see that ye judge, ye do not judge wrongfully, but with the same judgment that ye judge, ye shall also be judged. So, for me, my thought was, there, there's, just like we, 
we can automatically make assumptions that lead us down wrong paths. I think sometimes we assume that without knowing about Christ, people are incapable of doing good things mm. or developing good attributes or developing good moral uh, standing or, or moral habits. Or, and that's not the case because we're told that everyone has the light of Christ, the ability to discern good from evil. Now, just like the Holy Ghost, just like your covenants, just like everything else, if you ignore it, if you don't nurture it, if you don't do anything with it, it will diminish your 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 priesthood authority, you know, your your, your temple covenants, your you know, your baptismal covenants. If you don't, that's why we need to always, uh, like in the book more says, retain a remembrance and retain a remission of our sins, is because we always need to continuously progress. Uh, so that that was one thought is it's easy for us to assume, hey, the Lord has told us to do A, B, C, and D as far as covenants with him. If we don't get to do those covenants, then I guess we aren't going to heaven. And what these revelations kind of show is that I think it's, we see that when, when in, in verse 5 and 6, where he says, I saw Father Adam and Abraham and my father and my mother and my brother Adam that had long since left. And marvel how it was that he had obtained an inheritance in that kingdom, seeing that he had departed this life before the Lord had set his hand to gather Israel the second time, and that he had not been baptized for the remission of sins. So even the prophet didn't really understand at this time that uh, his brother, Alvin, who, who was good, who was great, who was a good person, this was totally new information, you know, um, that he was going to be okay that he was going to receive an inheritance in the kingdom of God. Which means that there's more to our lives than just our immediate circumstance right now. You know, there, there's things that happen after in the spirit world. And there's, I don't know, it's almost like the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is a method by which we like purify ourselves and improve. And even if we don't consciously are following him by doing good, we are being prepared to accept the gospel when we hear it. And when that occurs, could be in this life and it could be in the next. The fallacy that we fall into is thinking consciously that we can put that moment of commitment, we can tuck that away into the future because we don't want to do it right now. That, I don't think, has the same effect as if you've done the best you can, you didn't know any more information, you didn't have missionaries or the gospel wasn't around during your time. You did the best you can with what you had, the Lord's going to work with you and you're going to continue to grow and progress. Now, if you are given the opportunity and you tuck that away as if, oh, I want to be treated like someone who hasn't received the gospel, and so I want to sit and do all the things I want to do, and then I'll worry about that. No, because it's not about a checklist of do's and don'ts. It's a checklist of, like, your character, you know, and you're developing a very big flaw in our, in our character if we think, oh, I know better now, but I want to act as if I don't know better now, you know? Right. After, like in verse 8, also all the... Also, that shall die henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it in their heart, shall be heirs of that kingdom. And by the way, earlier I'm not insinuating that we shouldn't go out and teach people and seek them out just because, eh, the Lord will save them. Um, I think that that kind of question is answered in verse 9. It says, for I, the Lord, will judge all men according to their works, according to the desires of their hearts. So people that never have a chance to accept the gospel in its fullness will still be judged on what they did in their life and what the desires of their hearts were. And since we know from the, even from the Book of Mormon, studying that last year, that people will be judged according to the knowledge that they have, um, whatever that knowledge may be. 
If they have the full the full gospel, you'll be judged according to that. If you don't, you'll be judged according to what you do know. Um, that that just shows us that you know, yes, you will be judged according to your works, the things that you do at the level of knowledge that you have, and also whatever the desire of your heart is. You can have the fullness of the gospel, and you can go to church every Sunday, and you can go to the temple even with this bad attitude and begrudgingly that oh, I'm forced to do this, and I'm forced to pay my tithing, and I'm forced to do this and that, and have this you know not a good desire of your heart. And yeah, you may be completing the the check boxes, right? But the Lord also looks at the desi desires of our heart, and so I think it, it's good to know that He'll have mercy for those who didn't have a chance to hear the gospel. That it's not like the you know a, a lot of the preachers at the time in Joseph Smith's era is saying either be baptized tonight at this revival or you're going to hell. You know? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's kind of like you think. I always imagine those preachers almost like door-to-door -door salesmen. Yeah, you know, they show up with a really nice vacuum to tell you, hey, if you know, let me show you why my vacuum is better than his vacuum. And and what the Lord is interested in is, can you learn to be clean? You know, yeah. it doesn't matter if you're doing it with a vacuum, with a brush, with a because a lot of people get the vacuum and never use it. Right. You know? and, and if the objective is to be clean or to, I don't know, this is a bad analogy, but to clean the house, the tool is not as important as the desire to be clean. Do the best you can, and as you can, the Lord will give you something even better than a vacuum in the long way. You know what I mean? Um, I thought it was interesting in back in section 137 in verse seven. Well, in verse six, you know, Joseph Smith, he kind of marvels, you know, that, hey, I thought people weren't safe prior to the official gathering of Israel, you know, this new restoration. And then in verse seven, the Lord says, thus came the voice of the Lord unto me saying, all who have died without a knowledge of the gospel who would have received it, if they had been permitted to tarry, shall be heirs to the celestial kingdom. And then in verse eight, all, also, all that have died henceforth without a knowledge of it, who would have received it with, with all their hearts, shall be heirs to that kingdom. So this is interesting because for me, it, with, with the gospel, I always like to think about agency, like how important agency drives the design of our existence. Because if we truly have agency, then there will be people that will be deprived from the opportunity to have the gospel. So I think... The fact that there are falling aways or um what do we call those uh apostasies you know that there's restorations and apostasies and different dispensations is more to do with our agency as humans than with god's design that i am designing that you're not going to receive the gospel in your time i think we see it play out in the book of mormon that lehi counsels his children he pleads with layman and lemuel do not go down this path cease to be rebellious cease to complain ask the lord look at your example your brother because it's going to not just affect you it's going to affect your children and it's going to create this divide of these two nations that's going to be a whole bunch of struggles mm -hmm. i think there because of agency there could have been a scenario where there wasn't this divide that they were one people you know and we have examples of that we have the city of enoch you know, we have uh, in like uh, in the Book of Mormon, the fourth Nephi, when after after Christ has come, that the people dwelled for like two or three durations in like complete happiness and harmony, you know. So it is doable, but because of our agency, we can be hurting those that come after us, you know, um, our children and their children. If we decide, hey, you know, I'm not going to follow the gospel. I'm not going to be a good example. I'm not going to use the vacuum. I'm not going to work so sometimes we tend to unfairly cast that judgment upon the lord and heavenly father and saying oh people oh you're telling us you 
people don't receive the gospel. Why? Because you have these people, Israel, that are elect or, or, or these people that are better. No, I think that's the earliest. I think the earliest Heavenly Father can restore the gospel. He does that. Right. You know, like we go through these times in the in the period of, of human history where the gospel and the priesthood authority is taken from the earth. And we're told why? Because you killed the prophets, because you threw Jeremiah in jail, because you're now going to persecute Lehi. And now the Lord, in order to preserve a seed or preserve something, he tells Lehi and his family to escape, you know? And so, I don't know. When I think about in this section, like, um, I, I do not like the idea that the gospel is, you, you have it now just because you were good enough at some point or you're lucky or fortunate. In, in some aspect, you owe that to those that have come before you. Um, and if you do have the truth, it is even more responsibility that you have to live up to it and to share it with others. Because if you do not share it, you are like, it's almost like you're not being grateful for the fact that how lucky you are that you have this knowledge. You know? Well, and on top of that, I think one of the main reasons why we're asked to go and seek out people who are ready to hear the gospel and accept it and share the message is partly our growth too, our development as well. Like you can have the gospel and sit in your basement and feel really happy about what you have and feel really good about it, but your growth is stunted until you go out and experience the the challenges and blessings of sharing that with other people. And as a missionary, I think everyone who's ever served a mission or had an, a similar experience in any way can attest to the fact that you grow your own testimony, probably bigger even than your the people you talk to. Your own testimony is more has experiences more growth during that time period and is challenged more during that time period than maybe most other time periods in your life. And there's a purpose behind that. I mean, the whole idea is that you come back stronger, that you have greater conviction in what you're teaching. Um, a lot of missionaries that I, that I know went out, you know, with very fledgling testimonies, barely believing, barely knowing the things they were supposed to be teaching and came back saying, you know what, I had experiences where I was testifying about this, not even 100% sure that I myself believed it. And in that moment, I received a testimony of it, right? The spirit, as I was speaking, confirmed to me what you're saying is true. And now I know. And so it's like, why do we why do we bother going out and sharing the gospel with people when the Lord is just going to account for their the hearts the desires of their hearts anyway? Well, there's a lot of opportunities for growth for them and for us in this life through that experience. Yeah, and just like that example that you mentioned, like sometimes you're testifying and then you realize, oh, it kind of clicks into place. You know, yeah. you see that one. that you know it's you know so important that faith we understand that faith is something that we believe in that we know it's true. And we continue to do our best with what we know at this moment, you know, and it's very similar to like when you're in school and you're trying to learn fractions or division or, or something, right? Math, right? Or, or anything, right? The teacher knows, the manual knows, but you don't know. And all you can do is one, listen to a new perspective. Hey, can you imagine that you can take a number what we like to call a whole number and divide that into like parts? you know, fractions. And you're like, okay, sure. And the easiest way we hit down that road is always like a pizza or a pie. You take a pie and you're super preserved and you're cutting them, you know? And then it's like, well, can you add them together? Can you divide them? Can you times them? Can you change them into decimals? You know, all these things. And sometimes you're just doing your homework and you know how to like follow the pattern that the teacher tells you. Well, when you have a denominator that's larger, you're gonna add it straight across. When it's lower, you know, you're not, you know, and you're just following a pattern. And then one day after so many repetitive homework assignments, it clicks and your understanding grows in a way that is totally different. 
that is no different than the way the gospel operates you know and we like to think that oh uh, you know like that we're in some sort of higher plane of understanding because we we can do math or, or we have these textbooks but that is really no different than the way the lord operates you know he tells us to do something i want you to pray every day and be have a grateful heart and you know what when you eat pray about that bless the food and is it because without that the food turns randomly into poison and we're trying to cast off this this food that will randomly poison no is it the fact that the, now the food won't get you fat or you won't be able to choke on it or have an allergic reaction no it's not that it's about you and your ability to understand that every day is a gift and that and the things that you have are part of just being grateful you know how do you stave stave off the fact that you can become dissolution and and almost like ungrateful and maybe that's what the Lord is saying is if you don't take time throughout your day to express gratitude and enjoy what you have, you will become so bitter that no amount of richness will ever be good enough. And do we have situations in life where, where that's the outcome, where there's individuals who have so much compared to individuals who have nothing, and the individuals who have nothing are so much happier than the individuals that have everything and keep getting. It's almost like this. It's never, never enough, right? There's a quote by President Irene in the Sunday School Manual about this. Um, it says, only a very small minority of God's children obtain during this life a complete understanding of God's plan, along with access to the priesthood ordinances and covenants that make the Savior's atoning power fully operative in our lives. Some may consider this unfair. They may even take it as evidence that there is no plan, no specific requirements for salvation, feeling that a just loving God would not create a plan that is available to such a small portion of his children. Others might conclude that God must have determined in advance which of his children he would save, and made the gospel available to them, while those who never heard the gospel simply were not chosen. But you and I know, because of the truths restored through the prophet Joseph Smith, that God's plan is much more loving and just than that. Our Heavenly Father is anxious to gather and bless all of his family. While he knows that not all of them will choose to be gathered, his plan gives each of his children the opportunity to accept or reject his invitation. And I think that that concept comes into play in the idea that uh, missionary work continues after this life. That even if they didn't have the chance to accept it during this life, we still have the opportunity in the spirit world to both teach and accept more truths. And I think that, that that's kind of an important concept that I think our, our church, it may set us uh, apart from others in some ways, where in many other churches, it's like, this is it. This is, your, this is your chance. You either accept Jesus as your savior or you are lost, right? And in our, in our church, it's like, you know what? We know because of this revelation that there are opportunities even after this life to accept it. Like you were saying earlier, you can't just say, well, I don't want to live that way right now. Like that's going to cause too much change in my life. So I'll just wait till after this life to accept it. You can't knowingly do that, right? But people that didn't have an opportunity aren't going to be just left in the dust. Like that, that's not something a just and loving God would do. If he's going to make something a requirement, he's also going to provide a way to achieve that requirement. It's kind of like Nephi was saying, he's not going to give a commandment to me without providing the way for me to fulfill that commandment. And this, this extends to this as well. On section 138, you know, we, you know, President Joseph Felton Smith, he, he then, part of the vision he receives, he sees um, that the Savior, he's actually, it's kind of interesting because he's contemplating scriptures. He's like reading in the New Testament and then certain, certain scriptures really stick out in his mind. And then he starts to ponder about it. And as he ponders, he starts receiving revelation. And then, you know, some of these visions occur. And um, in verse 25, where he says, I marveled, for I understood that the Savior spent about three years of his ministry among the Jews and those of the house of Israel, 
and endeavor to teach them the everlasting gospel and call them in repentance. And yet, notwithstanding his mighty works and miracles, the proclamation of the truth, and great power and authority, there were but few who hearkened to his voice and rejoiced in his presence and received the salvation of the saints. So he's kind of saying, even the Savior had three years amongst the Jews, like when he, his main ministry, and there were very few that listened to him. In 27, it says, but his ministry among those who were dead was limited to the brief time intervening between the crucifixion and his resurrection. And in verse 28, it says, and I wondered at the words of Peter, wherein he said that the Son of God preached unto the spirits in prison, who sometimes were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God awaited the days of Noah, and how it was possible for him to preach to those spirits and perform the necessary labor among them in so short a time. So that's a very practical question. Right. Because he's saying the Lord's ministry was three years, and he had very few individuals. And so if, the, if, if like, if he visited the spirit world in the three days in which he was in between his crucifixion and his resurrection, how could he have, would that be even less effective? You know, maybe, you know, even, even less people. And then as he's thinking about that in verse 29, he says, and as I wonder, my eyes were open and my understanding quickened. And I perceived that the Lord went not in person among the wicked and the disobedient who had rejected the truth to teach them. But behold, from among the righteous, he organized his forces and appointed messengers, both with power and authority, and commissioned them to go forth and to carry the light of the gospel to them that were in darkness, even to all the spirits of men. And thus was the gospel preached to the dead. And so he's seen that, you know, the Lord, he organized his church, his kingdom there as well, and gave priesthood authority and taught them how to go out. And it's no different than the pattern he's using right now on this side of the world. How can the savior teach everybody through us and it's not because he can't do it himself because he's shown that he can you know he probably of course do it even better than us missionaries or us neighbors or us people but in the process of teaching you learn and in the process of helping others you become better and that's you know both individuals are edified you know so for us to be messengers or to be his disciples or to be the ministering companion, the Sunday school teacher, the primary organist, you know, from all of these things, we are asked to help and we are edified. It's very different than the way traditional history has taught us leaders delegate. Most leaders delegate because they don't want to do something. I think Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ delegate because they want you to learn something and, and receive a joy that you can't experience any other way. And if you want an example of that, think about parenthood. You know, the joy you receive when you see your child learn something and understand something. In verse 50, there's an interesting kind of doctrinal thing. After he's talking about <clears throat> what all has been taught and to whom and who's present. He talked about all the prophets that are there and stuff like that. Um, in verse 50, he says, For the dead had looked upon the long absence of their spirits from their bodies as a bondage. And it's interesting because we always think about like the body being the thing that holds us back. Our body is this, this mortal thing that keeps us from being free, that, that has bad habits, that has needs, that has this and that, that pull us down, you know, and that we need to somehow overcome the natural man, right? That the body is somehow blamed for being the natural man. But in 51, these the Lord taught and gave him power to come forth after the, his resurrection from the dead to enter into his father's kingdom, there to be crowned with immortality and eternal life. And continue henceforth their labor as had been promised by the Lord to be partakers of all blessings which were held in reserve for them that love him. The resurrection is that rejoining of the spirit and the body. And it's interesting to me that the same thing that's given to us for this mortal existence is also 
necessary to inherit the celestial kingdom and to be judged. And we often look at it as, you know, it's imperfect, it's, it's weak, it has all these physical needs. Um, but that's just a condition of our mortal state. And when, when we're no longer in that mortal state, our body is actually uh, a necessary key to be able to have to enter into celestial kingdom. And I just thought that was an interesting thing because, I don't know, it's often looked at as this hindrance. And really what it is, is it's imperative in the end that we have that. And it, you know, makes sense because who are the other spirits that will never be able to do that? Are the ones that chose not to come here. The ones that chose not to get and come to this earth. And that's probably part of the frustration that they may have is that they also won't be able to have that body to be judged and to go to a kingdom of glory. It's interesting because I I often think we um like you mentioned, our body presents certain challenges to us, but we're kind of told like when you don't have it anymore, you're gonna wish you did. Yeah. <laughs> you're gonna want that body. And it's very similar to lately. I've been considering different, um, what is it called? Um, opinions, uh, memes, complaints, social attitudes that are floating around out there. And one of the most common ones is the fact that people take something that is an opportunity and find a way of complaining about it. Uh, one could be like work. You know, hey, I hate Mondays. All oh, Mondays are worse. You know, and you know, sure, there's some of that, but some people take it to an extreme, like, oh, now I have a car, now I have to get insurance. And like, like, like the vehicle, like the thing that you work for only adds additional pain to your life. Like this life is just, oh, and, and there's little things and jokes that are like creeping about, like, you know, this tadpole crawled out of the water and started evolution. So now, for, fast forward 5,000 years later, I have to work at Target. <laughs> you know, it, like we, we, you know, some of it is funny, but, but one of the thoughts I was, I've been having recently is like this principle of, in the scripture where it tells us in Isaiah verse five, verse, uh, chapter five, verse 20, it says, woe to those that call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And there are so many scriptures that talk about that principle, that woe unto those who call evil good and good evil. And that with, in our day, with the complexities of societies and governments and people and, and languages and expressions and technology has become even more prevalent, the ability to call evil good and to call good evil, to call bitter sweet and sweet bitter. And this principle that the gospel, something good, our existence, our, the, the moment that we shouted for joy and chose this mortal experience as a bad experience that like, like we don't have, like people didn't receive the gospel, therefore they must have done something wrong. Or we received it, therefore we've done something great. We could fall under this section where, where we start calling good things bad and bad things good. And the way the Lord operates is there are individuals who have not received the gospel. Is that their fault? Are they sinners? Are they cast off? No. You know, and the realization that to the Lord, nobody is lost. All things are accounted for. You know, and sometimes we can get mad at Heavenly Father or Jesus Christ or try to find fault with them. Like, hey, how could you let, how could you let, how could you let this, how could all these millions of people die? Or uh, those people, or how could you let the Holocaust? How could you let this? How could you, and it's like, how could you let, you're calling your agency and being given agency bad? 
and you want to call having an authoritarian figure stronger than you choose for you and take your agency or other people's agency away good you know it's that thing where we we start calling good evil and evil good and start defending and trying to find these ways to battle the same when we haven't taken the time to understand some basic principles that he's repeatedly taught us over and over again and when we don't have the gospel it's because people's agency made that decision and yes it impacts people and it impacts innocent people and it impacts people who would have like the scripture says gladly received it but your parents or grandparents or great-grandparents or that person stoned the prophets or walked away or decided no not for me and that's kind of interesting to think about because I, I know I've been in that boat. I know I, a lot of times I question why doesn't why did God allow that to happen? And he didn't allow that to happen. He allowed and gave agency to everyone. And with that agency, people chose to have these things happen. You know? And likewise, he does intervene. He does gather Israel again. And like he says in Isaiah, I gather the, like a, the chicks, like a hand gather her chicks, and my hand is stretched out still, and I come into my own, and they don't recognize me. You know, so it's not, and then we have like the allegory of the olive tree where he's kind of explaining his effort and how much he works in, in the vineyard. And even when the servants, even us who tend to complain, say, okay, can we be done? There's no more fruit to be had. These trees are not being uh, good. They're stubborn. Trees. And he says, counsel me not. Let's go out one more time. Let's go. dude. And, and that's one of the things is we start calling good, evil, and evil, good. And even to the point where we start calling the plan of salvation, evil or we start assuming we understand all of god's workings and and that's a very dangerous thing to head down that path anyway um well i think what it, what it comes down to is our, our idea of ordinances for those that have passed away um it's not something that's very common in in the world uh, among other faiths that we're continuing to do things to help save someone who's already passed right there are some, you know, obviously every religion has ways to pray for those that have passed, that they'll be, that they'll be well, or to try and send things along with them uh, in some way that will help them on their journey in the afterlife. We've seen that throughout history even. But the idea that we're actively going to participate in an ordinance that they will either accept or reject and the outcome will determine their standing in the afterlife. Like, I don't, I don't know that that's super common. And it's one of the pivotal things of our, of our faith. It's the reason we have temples. And it's interesting because it's one of those things that not only sets us apart, but also helps us understand some of the pivotal aspects of the gospel that are clearly, um, yes, you will be judged for your actions. Yes, you'll be judged by the desires of your hearts. And yes, there will be an, an overwhelming amount of mercy. The mere fact that you can go and carry out all the ordinances for someone who never had a chance to is a huge mercy on them. Um, by the Lord saying someone else can go do this for you and then you have a chance to accept it or to reject it. Why do we do the things to stay worthy for the temple? Why do we invest so much time and money in building temples? Like all of that plays off of the idea that the demar that, that the dead are still redeemable, that they are not lost, that they are not gone, that they still exist and are still with us in some way. Well, we in and to take it further to build on that, you know, we've been told if we don't do this work, the earth cannot fulfill the measure of its creation, right? If yeah. we don't do this work, neither we can be saved. And so it's kind of saying we need both. Oh, verse 58 in section 138, where it says, and the dead who repent will be redeemed through the obedience to the ordinances of the house of God. And that reminded me of a scripture, and it is in Ezekiel chapter 18 in the Old Testament, where, where verse 19, 20, and 21, where it says, 
Yet say ye, why? Doth not the Son bear the iniquity of the Father, when the Son hath done that which is lawful and right, and hath kept all my statutes, and hath done them, he shall surely live. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. The Son shall not bear the iniquity of the Father, neither shall the Father bear the iniquity of the Son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon him. But if the wicked will turn from his, all his sins he shall, that he hath committed, and keep all my statutes, and do that which is lawful and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. This same principle has been taught from the beginning. You are not guilty by the sins of your father, neither is your father guilty by your sins. But together, those that keep the, the statues and, and do the righteous things shall be saved. And the wicked that turn from their sins shall be forgiven and shall live. And that is the essence of all these things, whether that turning occurs here, whether it, it happens in the spirit world, where when you are called, do you answer? That's really what anyone needs to worry. When the Savior calls you, do you hear him? And that can occur without any prior knowledge of him, like with the apostles, where he says, hey, cast your nets and, 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 and come follow me, right? Or when it occurs with the saints, or when it occurs with us, or it occurs in the spirit world, it matters very little. What matters is do we use our agency and do we respond to, to the call, right? Yeah, and the next verse after that, it says, and after they have paid the penalty of their transgressions and are washed clean, shall receive a reward according to their works, for they are heirs of salvation. So there's still justice in this mercy. It's not that, you know, these people do whatever they want, they have all the luck, and then they die without the gospel, and then they get all the blessings of salvation, even though they didn't have to live this way during this life. There's still an, an aspect of, after you pay the penalty for transgression, which may be just that uncertainty, it may just be that feeling of helplessness that I can't now do anything to save myself. You know, I, I can't receive those ordinances without help. Um, and then are washed clean. So they accept those ordinances and they finish their repentance, right? And they show a, a true change of heart. Then they'll get their receives a, a, their reward according to their works. It'll still be according to their works, right? And I just, I think that we, we struggle so much because in our, in our world and in our culture, there's this idea of we want to have defined what, what everyone gets, what everyone deserves. We want to have that spelled out to us. What's the punishment? What's the, what's the reward? And it's like the Lord is, is looking at us saying, don't worry about that or others. Don't sit around and try and decide what others deserve or don't deserve good and bad. Let me handle that. Just know that I will be very fair. I will be very merciful and fair. That justice will have to be served, but also mercy is part of this equation too. You know, and I think that especially in times when we hear, you know, fire and brimstone talk, the Lord is like, look, those that never had the chance, I'm going to take care of them. And those that had the chance and, and rejected it, well, they may have to a little bit longer struggle to get back. That's why it's so important that we, we do temple work and that we are worthy and active and, and engaged in that family history um, to give people the opportunity, the most opportunity. And, of course, for those you know, kickback blessings that we get uh, as a result, uh, it's not just for others. It's also there is a selfish aspect of that, that we learn and grow and have a stronger testimony and, and that we have a greater connection to our Heavenly Father. That's a direct benefit of serving in the temple and doing that ordinance work for them. Yeah. Well, it's it's like the reward of living the gospel is not some it's not always well, of course, we want to receive eternal life, you know, and exaltation, right? But the reward is there all along the way. Let us be awake and not be wary of well doing. 
for we are laying the foundation of a great work, even preparing for the return of the Savior. My dear brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ invites us to take the covenant path back home to our heavenly parents and be with those we love. He invites us to come, follow me.